As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. AGI in, in five years or something from now. What's cool is how uncontroversial these these statements are in, 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 in so many circles are now, right? That we will have massively superhuman AGI that will exceed humans in essentially every respect of intelligence. So, I mean, I think what happens to human society during that transitional phase is, is very nasty and difficult. Today we talk about large language models, artificial general intelligence, and merging with machines. Ben Gortzel is a computer scientist, a mathematician, and an entrepreneur. He's the founder and CEO of SingularityNet, and his work focuses on AGI, which aims to create truly intelligent machines that can learn, reason, and think like humans. This was another talk that was conducted at the Center for the Future Mind at the MindFest conference at the beautiful beach of Florida Atlantic University. Expect to hear more discussions on AI by speakers like Gortzel. Gortzel will also appear with David Chalmers on an upcoming episode, as well as David Chalmers on his own, as well as Wolfram on his own as a part two to the lecture that he's already given. Part one for Wolfram is listed here. This will occur over the next few days and weeks on the Theories of Everything channel. As usual, links to all are in the description. I would like to thank Susan Schneider, professor of philosophy, because this conference would not have occurred without her spearheading it, without her foresight, without her inviting Theories of Everything as the exclusive filmer of the event as well as we're going to host a panel that will be on later with David Chalmers and Susan Schneider. Thank you again to Ben Gortzel. There are many, many more plans coming up for the Theories of Everything channel. Toe is not just a podcast, it's a project. If you'd like to hear more from this channel, this project, then feel free to subscribe and YouTube will suggest you more. There's a variety of upcoming content on the themes of theoretical physics, consciousness, artificial intelligence, and philosophy. Enjoy. Thanks for, for inviting me, and it's, it's a really, it's a fun time to be at, at a conference of this nature with all the, all the buzz around the a- AI and intelligence and a- AGI and so forth. I mean, as, as Rachel alluded, I've been doing this stuff for, for a while, like, like, like many of the speakers here. I mean, I did my PhD in math. Even I did my PhD in math in the late 80s, but even at that point, I was interested in, in AI and sort of the, the mathematics of mind and in implementing the mathematics of mind in, in, in computers. And of course, most people in 
this room know, though most people on, on, on the planet do not, that the AI field was already quite old by the, by the 1980s, right? I mean, I mean, now, now, you know, in the Uber ride over here, I, I told the lady driving the Uber I was, I was going to a, a conference on basically machines that think like people and how to make machines, th- machines think like people. I mean, she obviously had no, no tech background. I said, I've been working on this since the 80s. So first of all, she's like, oh, I had no idea people were working on this that long ago. Secondly, she's like, but I, I thought that had already been done and machines could already think like people, right? So I mean, her, 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 her assumption is that it had already been solved and was running in the background making some billionaires money and they're like that's uh, that, that 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 was just just the state of things right so but as interesting that certainly wasn't the case 5 or 10 years ago right but i think yeah folks in this room are aware that work on these topics has been going on a very long time and also also that many perhaps almost all of the core ideas underlying what's happening in AI now are also fairly old ideas which have been improved and tweaked and built on, of course, as better and better computers and more data and better network and so on have allowed implementation of things just at a larger scale and thus experimentation at a larger scale. So, you know, it's been fascinating to hear talks on fundamental nature of consciousness and consciousness in, in babies and, and organoids and then on the, the structure and dynamics of the physical universe being addressed using data structures and, and dynamical equations really more characteristic of AI and computer science than, than of physics. So it's a, there's clearly fascinating sort of Convergence and cross-pollination going on with biology, psychology, physics, computer science, math. I mean, more and more, everything everything is 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 coming together. What what I want to focus on in my talk today is what I think are viable paths to get from where we are now, where we have machines that can fool the random Uber driver into, into thinking that, that they are human-like general intelligences. How, how do we get from where we are now to machines that actually are human-level general intelligences? And I believe shortly after that, we will have machines that are vastly greater than, than human-level general intelligences. But I'm, I'll say a little bit about that, but I'm going to focus more on the path from here to, to human-level AGI and you know I'll I'll give a few preliminaries before I get into that I'll talk a little bit about these GPT type systems which are sort of the the order of the day and a little bit about how I connect intelligence with consciousness I'll try to go through these huge topics fairly rapidly and then 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 move on to approaches to to engineering AGI so I think regarding chat GPT, other transformer neural networks, a bunch of correct and interesting things have been, have been said here 
already. I mean, I'm, I was also impressed and surprised by some aspects of the, of the function of these, of these systems. I was also not surprised that they lack certain sorts of fundamental creativity and the ability to do sustained, precise reasoning. And I think, you know, while I was surprised at just how well ChatGPT and similar systems can sort of bullshit and bloviate and write college admission essays and all that. I'm, in a way, I'm not surprised that I'm surprised because like I, I know that my brain doesn't have a good intuition for what you do when you take the entire web and, and, and feed it into, in, in, into a database and put some smart look up on top. I mean, just, just like I know my brain is bad at reasoning about the difference between a septillion and a nonillion. Like, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not really well adapted to think about some of these things that we don't come across in our, our everyday lives. So even now, like, if you ask ChatGPT to compose a poem, and it does, I don't have a good intuitive sense for, like, how many poems of roughly similar nature are on the web and were fed into it. And you could do that archaeology with great time and effort by putting probes into the network while it does certain queries. But it's, I mean, it's, that, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of work, right? And what's intriguing to me as someone who's written and thought a lot about general intelligence is these systems achieve what appears like a high level of generality relative to the individual human, right? They're, they're very general compared to an individual human's mind, but they achieve that mostly by having a very, very broad and general training database, right? They, they don't do big leaps beyond their training database, but they can do what appears very general to an individual human without making big leaps beyond their training database, because their training database has the whole fucking web in it, right? And I mean, that's a, that's a, very, that's a very interesting thing to do. It's a, it's, a, it's a cool thing to do. It may be a valuable thing to do, right? And it may be that using this sort of AI, not, not GPT in particular, but you know, large language models, transformer neural nets of this character done cr- cross-modally integrated with reinforcement learning. I mean, it may be that with this type of AGI, Excuse me. It may be that with this type of narrow AI system, even falling short of general intelligence in the human sense, I won't be shocked if that ultimately obsoletes like 95% of human jobs, right? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot more work to be done to get, to get there, of course. I mean, many jobs involve physical manipulation and integrating LLMs with robots to do physical manipulation is, is hard, as we see from these Robots here, like this dog whose head just fell off, and the <laughs> Sophia, who's on a tripod, although she she's been on wheels and legs at at at, at various times. So there's there's a lot of engineering work, there's a lot of training and tuning work, but fundamentally, I wouldn't be shocked if very high percent of jobs that humans now get paid to do could be could be obsoleted by this sort of of technology. And there, I mean, there are going to be jobs like a preschool teacher or hospice care or therapist that you just want to be done by a person because it's about it's about human to human connection just like we see live music even though recorded music may sound better because we like being in the room with people you other humans playing music right but that's a minority of jobs that that people do and there there are also jobs doing things that these sorts of neural nets I think will never be capable of and I'll come to that 
in, in the moment, though I think different sorts of algorithms could do it. But that's not a big percent of human jobs, right? So, but one, so one lesson to draw here is almost everything people get paid to do is just rote and repetitive recycling of stuff that's already been done before, right? And, and it, so if you feed a giant neural net with examples, a lot of examples of everything that's been done before that can then, you know, pick stuff out of this database and merge them together judiciously, okay, you eliminate most of what people get, get paid to do. And it, it takes a little bit of time to roll this out in practice, not necessarily that long. Like I know some friends of mine who were from the AGI research community started a company called Apprente maybe four or five years ago. And what they started out wanting to build AGI. Their, their VC investors channeled them, as would be the usual case, into doing some particular inve- application instead. And what, what they ultimately did was automate the McDonald's drive through they sold the company to McDonald's maybe two and a half years ago. It's now, now their technology is starting to get rolled out in, in some real McDonald's around the world, right? So, so you, you, you're getting that guy who sits behind the drive through window listening to stuff over that noisy, horrible microphone, like give me, you know, give me a big, big Mac and, and, and fries, hold the ketchup, right? I mean, so they're finally automating away this, these people, which, What's one thing that's interesting to me there is to see from that technology being shown to work to it actually being deployed across all the McDonald's is taking at least five years, right? So, I mean, it's, it's obvious that could be automated to me a long time ago. It was shown two and a half years ago that it could work on some McDonald's, but it's still not rolled out everywhere. It's rolled out in certain states, right? And, but then even, even like replacing the guy pushing the hamburger on the cash register with a touch screen where you push the hamburger yourself. Like even that's taking a long time to get to get to get rolled out. So the you know, these practical transitions would take a while. They're they're really, really interesting. But there's some things I think are held back not by practical issues, but by fundamental limitations of this sort of, of technology. I mean and in essence I think these are anything that intrinsically requires taking a big leap beyond everything you've seen before. And this sort of gets at the fundamental difference between what I think of as narrow AI and what I think as, as, as AGI. What I think of as AGI, general, artificial general intelligence, which is the term I introduced in 2004 or something in an edited book by that name from, from Springer. And this refers to a system that has a robust capability to generalize beyond its programming and, and training and, and, and its experience and sort of take a, take a leap into the unknown. And that, you know, every, every baby does that. Every child does it. I mean, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old now and three grown kids. And every, every one of them has made an impressive series of wild leaps into the unknown, like as they learn to do stuff that we all consider basic. Now, that, that doesn't mean an AI system couldn't do the same things a two and five year old can do without itself making a leap into the unknown. It could do it by watching what a billion two year olds did and, and interpolating, but kids still do that. And in terms of job functions that adults do, I mean, doing impressive science almost always involves making a leap into the unknown. I mean, there, there's a bunch of garbagey science papers out there. 
But if you look at the Facebook Galactica system, which was released and then retracted by Facebook, I mean, you, a, a large language model for generating science papers and such, you can see the gap between what large language models can do now and even pretty bad mediocre science. Like what Galactica spat out was pretty much science looking gibberish. Like it, it you know, it, it spat out like, you, you, you ask it, uh, tell me about the Lennon-Ono conjecture, and it, w- it will split out some trivial identity of set theory invented by John Lennon and, and Yoko Ono, and it's, it's amusing, but it's not able to do science at the level of a mediocre master's student, right, let, let, let alone a really strong professional researcher. And, I mean, the part of the core reason there is that doing original science is about taking a step beyond, beyond what was there. It's specifically not about just recombining in a facile way what was there before. So writing an undergrad essay for like English 101 kind of is about making a facile recombination of what was there before. So that, that, that's already automated away and we have to find other ways to attempt to, attempt to assess undergrad students, right? So I mean, in, in music, I would say synthesizing like a new 12 bar blues song there's no release system that can do that now, but I'm sure it's coming in the next few years, and some folks on my team in SingularityNet are working on that too. I mean, Google's model Music LM goes partway there, but it's not, it's not released. It's clear how to do better. On the other hand, think about if you fed a large language model or other comparable neural net with all music composed up to the year 1900, let's say, just supposing you had all in the database, is it going to invent jazz? Is it going to invent progressive jazz? Is it going to invent rock? Like you, you could ask it, like let's put West African drumming together with Western classical music and church hymns. It's going to give you Mozart and swing low, sweet chariot with a West African polyrhythmic beat, which may be really cool, but it's not. It's it's not. It's not going to bring you to Charlie Parker and, and John Coltrane, J- J- Jimi Hendrix and Spangle or whatever else, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's just not going to do it. So there's some, there's a sense in which this sort of creativity is combinatory, right? I mean, jazz is putting together West African rhythms with Western church music and, and chord progressions, and rock, rock is drawing on jazz and simplifying it and so forth. But that type of combination that's being done when humans do this sort of fundamental creativity it's different than the type of combination the chat GPT type system is, is doing, which really has to do with how knowledge is represented inside the system. So I think, I think these systems can pass the Turing test. They may not quite yet, but I think they can, certainly if you're talking about fooling a random human, that it's a human, it can probably already do that. I suspect I suspect without solving the AGI problem, you could create a system that would fool me or anyone into thinking it was a human in a, in a, in a conversation. Because so many conversations have been had already, and people aren't necessarily that, that, that clever either, right? So, I, I don't think these systems could pass a five-year-long Turing test. Because I could take a person of average intelligence and I could teach them computer programming and a bunch of math, and I, I could teach them to build things and so on over a long period of time, and I don't think you could ever teach GTP, GPT-4 or chat GPT in, in that sort of way. So, I mean, if you give me five years with a random human, I could turn them into a decent 
AI, AI programmer and electronics engineer and so forth. And that, that goes beyond, right? But, but Alan Turing didn't define the Turing test as five years long, right? He, 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 he defined it as, as a brief chat. But of course, he wasn't imagining what would happen if you put all of the web into a lookup table either, right? Because he was very smart, but that, that was a lot to see, see at, at, at that point in time. So I think, I mean, another example of something I think this sort of system wouldn't be able to do, let's say business strategy or you know political policy planning at, at, at the high level, because there, the nature of it is you're dealing with the world that's changing all the time and always throwing something new, new and weird at you that, that, that you that you didn't expect. And if, if you're really just recombining previous strategies... It's not a terrible thing to do, but it, it, it's not what has built the, the, the greatest companies. What's built the greatest companies is, you know, pivoting in a weird way and making elite, elite beyond, beyond experience. So, I mean, there, there certainly are things humans do that go beyond this sort of facile, large-scale pattern matching and, and, and pattern synthesis. But it's, it's interesting how far you have to reach to, to, to find them. On the other hand, it does mean if you had a whole society of chat GPTs, it will never progress, right? I mean, and some people might like that better, but it would, it would genuinely be, it would be stuck, stuck now in the shallow derivations of where, where you could get, get from now, right? It's, it's never going to make another, it's not going to launch the singularity, and it's a, it, it, there's a lot of other smaller things in that it's, it's not going to do. So I dwelt on that a bit partly because it's topical, but partly because I think it, it frames a discussion on general intelligence reasonably well in, 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 this, in the sense that it highlights quite vividly what isn't a general intelligence, right? Now, what is an intelligence is a, a bigger and, and subtler question, obviously, and I'm going to mostly bypass problems of consciousness that were discussed here this morning, not because not they're not interesting, but they're just, that's a whole, whole subject area in itself, and I, I don't have, have that much time. But I, I mean, the, I'm, fundamentally, I'm somewhat panpsychist in, in orientation. So I mean, I, I tend to think that, you know, this microphone has its own form of consciousness. And I don't care much if you want to call it consciousness or proto-consciousness or blah, 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 or, or whatever. But I think that the, the essence of what it is to experience, to me, is just imminent in everything. And it does manifest itself differently in a human brain than in a microphone. And how similarly it will manifest itself in a human-level AGI from a biological brain it's a very interesting question, and it probably depends on many aspects of how similar that, that AGI is, is, to the, is to the human brain. So, like, what's the, what's the continuity between structure and dynamics of a cognitive system and the, and the experience felt by that system? Is a small change in structure and dynamics always lead to a small change in, ex, in the felt experience? Like, there, there's a lot of fascinating, subtle questions there which I'm going to punt on for now. We can give another talk about that, that some other time. But the, what is intelligence? It's a slightly more interesting and relevant question. I also think not such a critical one. Like, 
fussing about what is life is not much of what biologists do, and you can do a lot of progress in synthetic biology without fussing a lot about what is life and worrying about whether a virus really is or isn't alive. Like, who, who really cares? It's a virus. It, it's, it's doing its thing. It has some properties we like to call lifelike. It lacks some others. And synthetic biology systems, each of them may have some properties we consider lifelike and lack some others. That, 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 that's fine. But there's still something to be gained by thinking a little bit about what is intelligence, what is, what is general intelligence. Uh, Marcus Hooter had a book called Universal AI, published, would have been 2005 or something. He, he proposed a formalization of intelligence, which basically is the ability to achieve computable reward functions in computable environments. And you have, you have to weight them, so you're averaging over all reward functions in all environments. And what he does is he weights the simpler, simpler ones higher than the more complex ones. And this leads to a bunch of fairly vexed questions of how do you, how do you measure simplicity and how, how equivalent is it to transfer between one measure of what environments rewards are simpler than others. But one, one thing that's very clear when thinking about this sort of definition of intelligence is Humans are pretty damn stupid. Like we're we're very bad we're very bad at optimizing arbitrary computable reward functions in in arbitrary environments, right? I mean, for example, running a seven hundred and eight dimensional maze is very hard for us, right? I mean, which is not even a complex thing to 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 formalize, right? I mean, we learned to run a two D maze, three D maze, maybe. Beyond that, most people will become very confused. But then. I mean, in the set of all computable environments and reward functions, there may be far more higher dimensional mazes than two or three dimensional mazes, depending on how you, you're weighting things, right? Let, let alone fractal dimensional mazes. I mean, there's, so there's, there's a lot of things we're just bad at. We come out very dumb by that criterion, which may be okay. We don't have to be the smartest systems in the universe. But an alternate and more philosophically deep way of thinking about intelligence was given by my friend uh, Weaver, a.k.a. David Weinbaum, in his PhD thesis from the Free University of Brussels, which was called Open-Ended Intelligence. And he, he's going back to continental philosophy and the Deleuze and Guattari and so forth. He's looking at uh, intelligent systems as a complex self-organizing system, which is driven by the dual complementary and contradictory drives of individuation, trying to maintain your boundary as a system, which relates somewhat to autonomy as it was discussed earlier today, but is, I think, more clearly defined. Individuation and then self-transcendence, which is basically trying to develop so that the new version of yourself, while connected by some continuous thread with the older version of yourself, also has properties and interactions that the old version of yourself couldn't ever understand, right? And, of course, all of us have both individuated and self-transcended over the course of our human lives. Human species has, 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 has also. And this doesn't necessarily contradict Marcus Hutter's way of looking at it. I mean, you, you, you could say through the iterated process of individuation and self-transcendence, maybe we've come to be able to optimize even more reward functions and even more, even more environments, right? I mean, there, there's all these abstract ways of looking at things don't really give us a way to tell how much smarter a human is than an octopus or or how smart a chat GPT is, you know, r- relative to Sophia or, 
exactly how far we've progressed toward, toward AGI. I, I think all these theoretical considerations have a lot of mathematical moving parts and are, are quite abstract. In practice, what we see is most people will give credit to chat GPT for being human-level AGI, even though experts can see it isn't. I had, I had posed a while ago what I called the robot college student test, where I figured if, if you had a robot, say a couple dot versions ahead of this one, you, you, you have a robot that can go to, let's say, MIT, do the same exact things as a student, roll around the classes, sit and listen to the assignments, take the exams, do the programming homework, including group assignments, and then graduate. And then I figure then I'm going to accept that thing is, in effect, a, a human-level general intelligence. And I mean, I'm not 100% on that, so I might be able to hack that, but you can see the university is set up it is set up precisely for that purpose, right? I mean, it's set up to teach. It's set up to teach a science university especially. It's set up to teach the ability to do science, which involves leaping beyond what, what was known before. And, and it's, it's set up to try to stop you from cheating also, right? So, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming there the robot isn't going to class and, and cheating by, like, sending 4G messages to some scientist in Azerbaijan or something, but, like, going... going Go, go, going, going through it in a, in, a, in a genuine way. But again, that, that sort of test, you could argue about the details, it's measuring human-like general intelligence. And I mean, it's very clear you could have a system that's much, much smarter than people in the fundamental sense, but misses, some, like misses social cues so that it wouldn't do well in group assignments in, 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 in college or something. And you, you could see that from the fact that there are autistic geniuses who would are human and would miss social cues and do poorly in, 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 in group assignments, right? And, and they're still within, within the scope of, of human systems. So I'd say, fundamentally, you know, articulating what is intelligence, it's an interesting quest to pursue. I'm not sure we've gotten to a final consensus on what is intelligence that bridges the abstract to the concrete. I'm not sure that we need to. It's pretty clear we don't need to. Like, we, we could make a breakthrough to human-level AGI and even superhuman AGI, and we still haven't pinned down what is intelligence. I mean, just as I think we could do synthetic biology to make weird, new, freakish life forms come out of the lab without having a consensus on, like, fundamentally what, what, what is life. So how do I think we could actually get to human-level general intelligence if... Transformer neural net chat GPT type systems are, are not the golden path. I don't see any reason there's one true golden path. I mean, I think a well-worn but decent example is manned flight. I mean, you've got airplanes, you've got helicopters, you've got, you got spacecraft, you've got, you got blimps, you've got probably ways of flying that we have pedal-powered flight machines, you've got probably many things that we haven't we haven't thought of that, right? I mean, so, I mean, there you had the fundamental principles of aerodynamics and fluid mechanics, and when you know that, you can figure there's a lot of different ways to fly. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of different ways to make human-level general intelligence. Now, some will be safer than others, just like blimps blew up more than, more than, more than, more than other modes of flying, and some, some will be easier to evolve further and further. So some ways of flying in Earth atmosphere 
are more easily evolved in the ways of flying into space, right? Uh, balloons are very poorly evolved. Very poor, hot air balloon doesn't turn into a spacecraft as well as you could, you, you could take an airplane and sort of morph that to make it a spacecraft. But, so I think there's going to be multiple different routes. And I'm going to briefly mention now three routes that I think have actual promise, one of which is what, what I'm currently mostly working on. So the first route I think has actual promise is actually trying to simulate the brain. And again, the people in this room are among the small percent of the human population who realize how badly current computer science neural nets fare if you think of them as, as, as brain simulations, right? I mean, the, the formal neuron embodied by some threshold function bears very little resemblance to a biological neuron. And even if you want to look at equational models, you have like Isakevich's chaotic neuron model. I mean, you have Hodgkin-Huxley equation. I mean, you have mathematical models of a neuron that also aren't quite right, but they at least try. And what's inside current computer science neural nets don't try. Then you have astrocytes, glia, all these other cells in the brain that are known to be helpful with memory. You, you have all this chemistry in the brain. You have extracellular charge diffusion through the, the extracellular matrix in the brain, which gives you EEG waves. I mean, you've, you've got a lot of stuff in the brain. We don't understand that well, and we're not modeling in, in any computer science neural net system. You also have a few cases known of wet quantum biology doing stuff in the brain and how how relevant they are to thinking in the brain is 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 is, is an unknown but even without going quantum we don't know enough about the brain to make a real computational brain simulation there's there's no reason no reason we we couldn't so i mean i had a i had a devious plan for this involving sophia which hasn't taken off yet so what what i planned is to make her a big fashion star, so that having a transparent plate on the back of your head was viewed as, as highly fashionable. Then you get people to remove the back of their skull and replace it with a transparent plate, like Sophia has, because it looks really cool, right? And then, but then once people have that transparent plate, then you can put like 10,000 electrodes in there and measure everything that's, that's happening in their brain while they go about their lives in real time, right? With, it, with, with, with that sort of data, you might be able to make a crack at really doing a, a, a biological simulation of, 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 of the brain. And hopefully someone in, invents a less hideous and invasive mode of, of, of brain measurement, right? I mean, like, things like fMRI and PET are incredible physics technologies. I feel like if we got another incredible physics technology to scan the dynamics of the brain with high spatial and temporal precision, we might gather the data we need to make a real brain simulation. And, you know, brain measurement is exponentially getting better and better. It's just so far the exponent isn't as fast as with computer software and, and, and AI, right? But it's, it's coming along. Even without better brain simulations, I think we could be doing a lot better. I mean, no, no one is devoting humongous server farms to, you know, huge nonlinear dynamics simulations of all the different parts of the brain using, say, Ishikevich neurons and chaotic neural networks. I mean, it's, if, if the amount of resources one big tech company puts into transformers were, were put into making like large-scale nonlinear dynamics simulations of brain based on detailed biology knowledge, I mean, we would, 
we would gain a lot, we would learn a lot beyond where we are now. We still don't have data on astrocytes and, and glia and a lot, of, a lot of neurochemistry, right? So we're still missing a lot. Interesting to think about the strengths and weaknesses of that approach, though. I mean, one weakness is we don't have the data. Another weakness would be once you have it, all you have is another human in a computer. And we've already got billions and billions of, of irritating humans, right? So, I mean, granted, that's a human where you can probe everything that happens in their digital brain, right? So then you could learn a lot from it. But the human brain is, you know, human brain is not designed according to modern software engineering principles or hardware engineering principles, right? For better and worse. I mean, say short-term memory, 7 plus or minus 2, what if you want to jack that up a bit? Like, there's not, probably not a straightforward way to do that. That's probably wrapped up in weird nonlinear dynamic feedbacks between, you know, the, the hippocampus, cortex, thalamus, and so, and so forth. That we're, we're not designed to be modded and, and upgraded in a, in a flexible way. We do have some interesting adaptive, adaptive abilities. Like if you graft a weird new sense organ into the brain, the brain will often adapt to being able to adapt to being, being able to, to sense from it. But there's weaknesses, and th- then there's potential ethical weaknesses also. I mean, the, the maxim that absolute power corrupts absolutely was this was a sort of partial truth formulated by observing humans. It's not necessarily a truth about all possible minds. But if, if you're making a human in a computer, if you do find a way to jack up its intelligence, then may, maybe you're creating like a horrible science fictional uh, anti-hero, like this human who lives in a computer and is smarter than everyone else. But no, this will never really have a human body. I mean, we can see it, we can see how the movie ends. But that's... Anyway, one possible route. Another possible route, which is very interesting to me and would be a lot of fun, but is not something I'm putting a lot of time into right now, is a more artificial life type approach. I mean, the field of A-life had a peak in the 90s or something. You were trying to make these sort of ecosystems of artificial organisms that would then evolve smarter and smarter little creatures. Didn't go as well as it wanted, but of course... You know, when I was teaching neural nets at University of Western Australia in the 90s, it took three hours to run a 30-neuron network with their current backprop, and everyone was bitching that neural nets are bad because they're too slow and they'll always be too slow, right? So it could be that what happened with artificial, with neural nets can also happen with A-life, right? I mean, it could be just scale. I mean, the, certainly the ecosystem has a lot of scale, right? And what you find is when you have more scale, you can then screw around with the details more and find out what, find out what works. And it seemed like an artificial life never found quite the right artificial chemistry to underlie, underlie the artificial biology. Not that many things were tried. A guy named Walter Fontana had a cool system called algorithmic chemistry in the, in the, in the 90s and, and early aughts where he was taking little LISP programs I just made a big soup in which Lisp codelets would rewrite other Lisp codelets and just try, try, trying to get autocatalytic networks to emerge out of that. Didn't go that well, but I mean, the amount of computational firepower being leveraged was, was very, very small, right? So it seems, seems like, I mean, there's an argument against it, which is like it took billions of years for life to emerge on Earth with a very large number of molecules involved with doing r- r- randomish sort of things. On, on, on the other hand, 
we can take leaps. We can watch experiments. We can we can we can fine tune things as a as as, as a human, like more more aggressively than the Holy Creator appears to have done with with evolution on on, on Earth, right? So, I mean, I, I think again, this is something that gets very little attention or resources now, but it would be really interesting to see what like a Google scale experimentation in artificial life would 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 lead there. There's not an obvious commercial upside to to early stages of that of that sort of research as, as compared to question answering systems or something. And I have some further ideas on how to accelerate artificial life, but I'll mention that at the end because they involve my my third plausible route to create AGI systems, which is what I'm actually working on now. And I'll. Just give a few minutes on that. I've given a lot of a lot of talks on it before, which you can you can you can find online. So, in terms of name brand systems that would be AGS systems, I'm working on now is called OpenCog Hyperon, which is a new version of the OpenCog system. So we had a system called OpenCog launched in 2008, based on some older code before that. Now we're making it pretty much from the ground up rewrite of that called Hyperon. But the ideas underlying it could be leveraged outside that particular name-branded name system. And one way to look at this is that we're hybridizing neural, symbolic, and evolutionary systems. Symbolic meaning logical reasoning, but not necessarily old-fashioned sort of crisp predicate logic. I mean, for those who are into wacky logic systems, it's probabilistic, fuzzy, intuitionistic, paraconsistent logic. So it's a, which sort of means probabilistic and fuzzy, probably you know what they mean. Paraconsistent means you can hold two inconsistent thoughts in its head at one time without going, going apeshit. Intuitionistic pretty much means it builds up all its, con its concepts from, from experience and, and observation. So, but still, logic theorem prover, right? So we're trying to deal with symbolic stuff by actual logic theorem proving. We're using neural nets for recognizing patterns in large volumes of data and synthesizing patterns from that, which they have obviously shown themselves to be quite good at. We're using evolutionary systems, you know, genetic programming type systems for creativity because I think mutation and crossover are a good paradigm for generating stuff that leverages what was known before but also goes beyond it. But again, it, it depends on what is the level of representation at which you're doing the mutating and, and crossing over. So, Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. We're integrating neural symbolic and evolutionary methods, not by saying, okay, neural's in the box, symbolic is in the box, evolutionary is in the box, and then the boxes are communicating across these channels. What we're doing we're making this large distributed knowledge metagraph. A metagraph is like a graph, but you can have links that span more than two nodes, like three, four, five, or 100 nodes, and you can have graphs pointing to whole subgraphs. So a hypergraph is a graph which has NRE as well as binary links. A metagraph goes beyond. You can have links pointing to links or links pointing to general subgraphs. So we have a distributed knowledge metagraph. There's an in-RAM version of the knowledge metagraph also. We represent neural nets, logic, logic engines, and evolutionary learning inside the same distributed knowledge metagraph. So in a sense, you just have this big graph. Parts of it represent static knowledge. Part represent active programs. The active parts run by transforming the graph. And the graph represents the intermediate memory of the algorithms also. So you have this big self-modifying, self-rewriting, self-evolving graph. And the initial state of that graph is that some of it represents neural nets, some of it represents symbolic logic algorithms, some of it represents evolutionary programming, some of it just represents whole bunches of knowledge, which could be fed in from databases, they could be fed in by knowledge extraction from large language models, or that they could be fed in from pattern recognition on, on, on sense perception, right? And to go deeper than this into what we're doing with Hyperon involves more math than I could go into here, especially without the presentation or anything. But it's, if you look at it, there's a paper I wrote and posted on Archive a couple of years ago called The General Theory of General Intelligence. And what, what I go into there is how you take 
neural learning, probabilistic programming, evolutionary learning, logic theorem proving. You represent them all in a common way using a sort of math called Galois connections. So I use Galois connections to boil these AI algorithms all down to fold and unfold operations over, over metagraphs. So that's probably gibberish to anyone without some, some visibility into the functional programming theory literature. But I guess the takeaway from that is we're trying to use advanced math to represent neural symbolic and evolutionary learning as separate views into common underlying math mathematical structures so that they're all kind of different aspects of the same meta-algorithm rather than different things living in, in, in separate boxes. Now, there's a connection between this and the artificial life approach to AGI, which I would love to approach at some point. And the connection is if you were brewing a bunch of artificial life populations on many different machines around the world, wouldn't it be interesting to shortcut evolution and train a smart machine learning system to predict which artificial life populations had promise and, and kill the ones that, did, that didn't early, right? And you, you couldn't do that too aggressively or you're going you're gonna to kill the, the, the hopeful monsters, right? But, but, you, could, but you, could, uh, you, could, you could certainly identify a lot of things that just aren't promising and identify something early as really promising and make multiple clones of it, right? So the, the idea of a narrow AI and then eventually AGI, like evolution master, to help brew the artificial life soup seems really, really quite in interesting to me, and maybe could shortcut past the, like, four billion years of, of uh, however many billion years life has been evolving on, 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 on Earth problem, right? So I think, I mean, of course, there's also ways more and more advanced AI can help with the neuroscience approach to, a to AGI also. I mean, there, there's no doubt, I mean, machine learning is already all over neuroscience, so there, there, there's, there's, there's no doubt that Steps toward AGI could help with inferring things about how the brain works from available available neuroscience data. I think uh, I still think you may fundamentally need more data than we than we have than we have have now. So those three approaches, I think, are all promising and and could work. And finally, I want to briefly note the role of hardware in all this, just for for a couple of minutes, because that that's sort of what ended up ended up bringing me here to Florida right now, actually, was the hardware side of things. So if you look at, you know, what caused neural nets to transition the way, the way, the way that they did? I mean, we were all doing neural nets for decades. They were slow, they were conceptually intriguing, but they weren't doing incredibly, incredibly amazing things. The reason they took off so much is, is pretty much uh, porn and video games, right? I mean, it's it's... It's because GPUs became so popular, and the GPUs do matrix multiplication really fast, and they plug them into regular PCs. They do matrix multiplication across many processors concurrently. But lo and behold, matrix multiplication is also what you need for running many simulations in, in, in areas of science, and it's also what you need for running, running neural nets quickly, right? So it, it turned out that these these GPU cards, which were created for video games and, and video rendering, right? I mean, the, the, these 
turned out to be the secret sauce for scaling up neural nets just so they could run faster. And I mean, in, the, in 1990, when I was a professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, we had a $10 million Cray YMP supercomputer. It could do 1,000 things at a time, which was so much for then, $10 million. I remember we programmed it in sort of parallel Fortran. And I mean, now GPU, of course, garden variety GPU can do more than a thousand things at a time, and each of those things is done much faster than, than, than the Cray did. So we were playing then with, with neural nets on this supercomputer. We saw what it could do. But now, now I mean, you have multi-GPU servers and racks and racks and, 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 and racks of them, right? So clearly, the hardware innovation, it didn't exactly let you take the code we were running in the 80s and 90s and make it work better, but it let you experiment with that code, see what worked, what didn't work, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it with fast experimentation, find something conceptually fairly similar that does amazing stuff. And so one, one question is, what hardware would let you pursue these other three approaches to AI that, that, that I outlined way, way better than has been done historically. And for, for brain simulation, I think it's clear what you'd need are actual neuromorphic chips, right? I mean, most of what are called neuromorphic chips are not so much, but you could, I mean, you could take Izhikevich's chaotic neuron and put it on a chip, and there's some research papers on it, though it's not being done at scale. I mean, you could take glia and astrocytes and put an knowledge about them on the chips. Like, I mean, you, you, could, you could try really hard to make an actual neuromorphic chip to drive large-scale brain simulation. On the, on, on the side of hybrid architectures, I'm actually working on a novel AGI board together with Rachel St. Clair, who in, introduced me up here, who, who's a, a, a postdoc here and who in, in invited me to come speak here. So Rachel had designed this hypervector chip, which puts on hardware very fast manipulations of very high dimensional bit vectors, which gives faster ways to implement neural nets, but also faster ways to do various things with logic engines. I had developed a chip that allows you to do pattern matching on graphs very fast by putting the, putting the graph on hardware. So we figured we can put her hypervector chip, my, pattern, my graph pattern matching chip, uh, deep learning GPU and a CPU, put them on the same board, connect them with very modern, fast processor-to-processor interconnect. Now, maybe if you do that, you, you'll have a board that does for this sort of hybrid neurosymbolic evolutionary system, something similar to what GPUs did, did for, for neural nets. At least it's a plausible hypothesis. So we're, we're going through the simulation process and looking for, for manufacturers and, 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 and so forth. But again, that's both a real project, which I think is cool, done through Rachel's company, Simuli, and it's a sort of just case in point, right? Like we should see, we should see a flourishing of more diverse sorts of hardware that bake diverse sorts of AI processing in, into the hardware. And that, that's as important as experimenting on the software because we can, I mean, we can see historically it's a lot of what let, led us where we are with, with neural nets today. So yeah, to briefly wrap up, I mean, it's a super exciting point in the history of, of AI, we have systems that do more human-like stuff than ever before. I think they're, they're not AGIs, and cognitive science thinking is very useful for understanding the ways in which 
they're not intelligent like, like humans are. On the other hand, I think many of the same underlying technologies are going to be useful for, for building actual AGIs. So while I, while I don't think the ChatGPT type systems are on the direct path, I mean, I think they're indirect evidence that we are probably not that far off from, from AGI. So I, I think I, I agree with Sam Altman. We could be at human level AGI in, in five years or something from now. I also won't be shocked if it's 15 years. I'll be shocked if, it, if it's 50 years. And what's cool is how uncontroversial these, these statements are in, in, in so many circles are now, right? It, it's, it's, it's cool and it's uh, scary, but certainly an exciting time to be, to be doing this sort of, of research. So if you, if you want to find out more about all this, there's my, my website, Gertzel.org, has links to a lot of things I'm doing. The website of my company, singularitynet.io, has links to a lot of AGI stuff, as well as telling about our blockchain-based platform for running AI decentralized across a global network with no central controller, which uh, I think is critical to the ethical rollout of AGI, but I didn't even have time to get into today. And now we all have to go to the beach and have a barbecue. (laughs) That was fascinating. Thank you so much, Ben. All right, so questions. So, yes. Sometimes we put AGI as a high bar of what we're trying to achieve, but it's probably going to be pretty uneven. So in what ways will it exceed human intelligence? What is the likely scenarios? And will those areas be identifiable by humans? Well, I I think that within, let's say, a couple years, just to throw a concrete number out there, I think within a couple years of getting a true human level AGI, we will have massively superhuman AGI that will exceed humans in essentially every every respect of intelligence. So I mean, I think once we have an AGI that can do computer science and math and computer programming, that can do the stuff that people in this room can do, I see no reason it couldn't upgrade its code base and improve the algorithms underlying itself to make itself say 1.2 times as smart as it was initially and then you you lather rinse repeat and now this gentleman here as someone immersed in the exploration of physics consciousness and math i recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind this journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find mosh bars mosh is a venture by maria shriver and patrick schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness with six mouth-watering flavors there's a taste for just about every palate even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition personally i found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day post-workout especially in fact i recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time Mm. How's the flavor? Mm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the bestsellers trial pack or 
or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. I wrote a paper on this some, some years ago. So I, I mean, so in which ways the first AGI will exceed people is not obvious and could depend on what, what route you take, right? It's like if we, if it came out of an approach with a symbolic logic engine in it, it's going to be way better at, at, at reasoning than people are. If it came out of a brain simulation, then it might, it might not be better at reasoning than, than, than people are. But you could still feed more sensors into it than you can feed into a single human brain. So it would get some added understanding that way. So that, but no matter how you get there, I think there's a recursive improvement loop you'll, 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 you'll enter into. Particularly when you consider you can make a large number of copies of this system, right? Like you have one smart human, okay, well then within reasonable amount of cost, you have a hundred, maybe a thousand smart humans. But they can do direct brain-to-brain sharing of knowledge, right? So it's pretty easy to see how you get that recursive self-improvement. I mean, you, you can't rule out there being some limit, but it seems really outlandish that like there's a fundamental limit at only 1.5 times human intelligence. To me, that's like saying you'll never make something run more than one and a half times as fast as a cheetah or something. That, that doesn't feel right. Finally, get to ask one question. I'm just, I, I'm curious because you know we think that AIs do have this recursive self-improvement capability, but when we're thinking about AI as a distributed environment with an ecosystem of different AI services and large language models and you know all kinds of entities controlled by who knows what, right? Certainly not aligned organizations. Why think that the future brings this? you know, improvement in the intelligence level, why not think of the future more in terms of what's been happening in bad scenarios with the amplification of discontent on Facebook, for example? Well, I think the recursive self-improvement, at one level, it, it, it happened, I mean, in one sense, it happens on a different level than that, right? So when you can think about a large knowledge metagraph like we have in, in OpenCog Hyperon, and... We have our own programming language, that, which is called META, M-E-T-T-A, META Type Talk is the acronym. So we have our META language, which basically interprets directly into nodes and links. And actually, it, to model the semantics of that, we use the mathematics of the infinity groupoid from category theory, which is equivalent to Wolfram's Ruliad that he was talking about. So I thought that was, that was interesting. The, the same, he uses this Ruliad structure built of all these hypergraphs. The Ruliad is basically the infinity groupoid from category theory, although Ruliad is a wizier name. And we use metagraphs, which are like hypergraphs with a few extra features. So actually the, the self-rewriting, self-organizing data structure we're using in Hyperon is highly similar to this self-rewriting data structure he's using to model fundamental physics, although the the statistics of the networks you see for modeling particles and objects are different than the statistics of networks you see if you're trying to model common sense knowledge. But there's not a contradiction. Those could be structures on different levels of the same network. So, I mean, at that level, the ability to self-modify and self-organize 
would like occur within the distributed network mind of a single open cog system or something. Now, if you're talking about across the whole planet, I mean, then then you're, you're basically, you're, you're looking at two different scenarios before or after the AGI takes over the world, right? So, <laughs> I mean, before, before the AGI takes over the world, you probably have a highly splintered off scenario, like right, right now where China is building its own networks, the U.S. is building its own networks, uh, Russia was trying to before they got distracted murdering people, right? So, I, I, I mean, so th- th- there's a... On the other hand, what we're trying to do with SingularityNet is make it open and decentralized infrastructure for deploying AI. So, in, you think of things like the Internet or Linux, which are everywhere with no central controller, right? So, if, if the first a- AGI is rolled out like that, it becomes like BitTorrent or something without the illegal copyright aspect. But I mean, it becomes like it's all over the place. It's running on machines all over the place with different nodes, and no one country has a monopoly of it. No one, no one can can stop it. But again, in the transi- the transitional phase, while we make the transition from narrow AI to AGI, and then from the first inklings of AGI to full on super AGI. What happens to human society during that transitional phase is is a very nasty and difficult question, right? Like, what what, what happens when ninety percent of human jobs are obsoleted, but the super AGI hasn't yet created a molecular nano assembler to airdrop into everyone's farm, right? Then then the developed countries will give universal basic income to everyone, and Africa will remain subsistence farmers with no work outsourced to them. Then, then their kids who can computer hack will hack into the power grid in, in the West and wreak a lot of havoc. So I think, I, th- I, th- I think there can be quite difficult scenarios in the, in the interim, yet I'm an optimist on the whole in that I think once, once you have an AGI that's several times human-level intelligence, then it can just cut, it can just cut through all this. I mean, I mean then, then it's then it's much smarter than we are, and it can it can uh, it can build its own robot factories to build new robot factories to create smart smarter AGIs and, and paperclip factories maybe right. Well, you, human, humans become like the squirrels in the national park, right? <laughs> I mean, they they carry out their own love lives. They hunt. They fight. They build stuff, and the, the rangers don't try to interfere with their social lives, right? <laughs> It's going to be fun talking to you more, Ben. I think we're on the same wavelength. Okay, so there were some earlier questions, starting with Garrett and then Carlos. Um, so actually, I have a question because you, you did bring it up a little bit, and um, I could talk to Garrett about this, but I just want to ask about this because you brought up A-Life. And also, obviously, like the right, the significant hardware limitations with the, with the idea of AGI. But in some sense, right, like, you know, um, I guess, how, how, what would you say in terms of how important the hardware question is for realizing AGI, like in the near term. So, um, I, I don't think we need. I don't think we fundamentally need different hardware to get to human level AGI. I mean, in, unless unless we're all wrong that classical computing is good enough, and you really need quantum computing, which I don't see evidence for, but I can't give it a zero probability. But I mean, by and large. From what we see about in the in the brain and what we see with AI systems out there now, 
you don't need radically different hardware. But by the same token, you don't need GPUs to do neural nets either, right? You could do, you could do it all on CPUs. It just costs more. The thing is, a couple orders of magnitude extra cost and extra power consumption is a sort of practical obstacle that can delay something by, 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 by decades. But, I mean, in, in the scope of history, delaying by decades doesn't, doesn't matter either, right? Well, I guess that's, that's kind of gets to where my, one of my questions to go to, right? Which is, like, there's a difference between achieving the goal of AGI with the hardware, <clears throat> despite the outrageous energy cost of, I don't know, mining the core of the planet. To, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, to realize this kind of, you know, you know, whatever magnitude order of intelligence greater it seems like it seems like with the hardware Rachel and I are working on, you could speed up the operations of systems like OpenCog or biologically realistic neural nets by at least like a couple orders of magnitude. So I mean, if you can speed things up by between a hundred and a thousand times, very helpful. So I mean that that so if you if you think about say a GPG three model cost. $5 million, $10 million to train. Well, if, if you didn't have GPUs, let's just for sake of argument, say it took 100 times longer, right? I mean, so then instead of 10 million, it's a billion dollars. But I mean, there's companies, these companies have a billion dollars, right? So I mean, and, and now, now OpenAI is getting $29 billion, right? But the, the, the thing is, no one wanted to give them $29 billion before they spent the 10 million, right? So it just, it's the higher cost, will slow things down and making chips that can speed things up by 100 or 500 times, I mean, obviously will shave, shave time off it. But I, I, I don't think it's a really fun, fundamental necessity. I mean, if quantum computing were needed, that would be more like a fundamental necessity. I mean, you could, of course, simulate the Schrodinger equation on a classical computer, but then you're getting into, like, many, many, many orders of magnitude slowdown that becomes infeasible. Yeah, thank you. Um, so under three alternatives towards AGI, like, one of them is one in which artificial general intelligence sort of, like, emerges from simulating the brain. Yeah in a kind of like individualistic, isolated manner. And the other ones are more like how we evolve and, and the conditions of the constraint. No, I, I, I mean, I, I think artificial life is how we evolved. I think an open cog system is very much not how we evolved. So my, my question is the, the role of social intelligence in the development of our uh, general intelligence. So yeah, think I, think, I think that's somewhat independent of the three avenues that I, that I outlined, and that any one of those avenues could be pursued in a way that's heavy on social intelligence, right? I mean, because you, you could, instead of making a single brain simulation, you could simulate the brains of a, of a tribe and put them in, in, in robots or, or in virtual characters in a game world and let them, let them buzz around and, and do things. And certainly with, with OpenCog systems, I didn't go into this, but we're, we're looking at exactly that. We're looking at using OpenCog Hyperon systems to control humanoid agents in a 3D virtual world. And I want to get them to collaborate to build stuff. And what, one experiment I'm very interested in is seeing if you can get a collection of OpenCog agents to invent their own language to communicate with each other about, about, about building stuff, right? So, I mean, there's, you could do social intelligence things really in, in any of these paradigms. I, th I think a, a difference is in the 
sort of neural symbolic evolutionary approach, there's more ways to cheat by injecting knowledge into the system's brain. Like you can inject databases in it. We, we're working on ways to take all the knowledge from a large language model, like a GPT-4, turn it all into huge predicate logic statements that can then be fed into a logic engine. We don't know how to... F if, if I had a trillion predicate logic statements, which are useful knowledge, I don't know how to feed them into a brain simulation <laughs> or an A-life system. I do know how to feed them into, into an open cog system. So that, that's a difference. Like, how easily can you cheat and inject knowledge? But social intelligence, I think you could do in in any of these paradigms and maybe may maybe a critical thing to do. I mean, we want to experiment with it. Misha had a question? Yeah, sorry, I just have a quick question. Um, you just mentioned uh, the having different agents and I wanted to hear more about the importance maybe to you, whether you consider that important or not, of agency and agent in environment in the context of intelligence. I mean, I, I think it's important to human-like intelligence that we evolve to control these bodies which are solid objects that move around in an environment comprised largely of other solid objects and that we're sharing this environment with other similar looking objects that seem to do kind of the same thing, things as us and that we, we need to do things collaboratively with them. I mean, c clearly, if you want to ask like, what's the prior distribution over observations and actions characterizing human intelligence, a lot of it has to do with embodied communication, with like shared com communication with others with similar bodies in, in, a, in, in, a, in a similar world. Whether that's fundamental to AGI in general, perhaps not, but it's pretty fundamental to, to, to human-like general intelligence. Parker had a question? Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks. And I'm sure you've uh, talked about this in your other talks. Um, can you speak to like the, the ratio between the neural net, symbolic, and evolutionary? Is, is one more important than the others? Is it a, a split or is that like proprietary that you can't talk about? Um, I mean, I, I think in the end, any of these three paradigms could build a very powerful AGI with enough resources. On the other hand, with 50 lines of Lisp code, you could implement what Marcus Hutter called AIXITL, which could have arbitrarily high intelligence using enough resources. So that's not that strong a statement. I, th I think, yeah, they're each important for different things. And I think you could build a variety of different systems that weights each one more highly if you wanted to, actually. So you, you could make a system that was mostly a transformer neural net with just adding little bits of symbolic reasoning on to stop the transformer neural net from being too inconsistent with itself. Or you can make a system that's mostly a symbolic reasoning engine and just outsources low-level pattern recognition and synthesis to, 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 a, to, a, to a neural net. And the, these would just be different flavors of minds that, you know, they might differ more than an autistic person from an, from an average person, but there'd th be d different variations of the same mind architecture. I mean, as I'm thinking of it by default, what I'm doing now, this symbolic probabilistic reasoning engine is sort of the core that everything feeds into, and we're extracting knowledge from large language models, and then we're using neural nets for perception and action, 
we're using evolutionary learning to come up with new ideas that are then validated or, or, or rejected by the, by the reasoning engine. But on the other hand, the software plumbing could sort of be used to make a variety of different systems that weight different components more highly. So that, that I think that will in large measure be an evolutionary, an experimental question, right? But it's also, it's a bit like asking how important is the attention mechanism inside a transformer, right? Because, I mean, it's there. A lot of other things are, 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 there, are, are there too, and they all have to work together. So Elon had a question. Do we have a definition of AGI, right? What do we mean by AGI? Um, do you have a working definition? It sounds like you have a sort of complementary, which many people do. You know it when you don't see it, right? In some sense, you haven't seen that thing, that creative spark, for example. I mean, I, I think I talked about this in the beginning of the talk. I, I think there are definitions of AGI in, in a broad sense, and Marcus Hooter got the ball rolling on that in his book, Universal, Universal AI. I mean, Shane Legg's PhD thesis, Shane later went on to found Google DeepMind, his PhD thesis gives an algorithmic information theory-based definition of, of general in, in intelligence. So, that, so that, that's, that's there. So then what we, what, you mean, what we mean by a working definition, I guess, is a definition of human-level AGI. And there isn't a really crisp definition there. And I, I, I think that makes sense because it's, I mean, biology and psychology are not so crisp and elegant, right? Like human level intelligence is just whatever humans happen to have evolved. It's just whatever we happen to, it's whatever we happen to have evolved to do by, by, by now, right? So, I mean, I, I think one, one thing that ChatGPT highlights is that being able to do like 80% of what 80% of people do, like most of the time, still is radically not the same thing as fundamental human level, human level general intelligence. And that, this is why I said, well, what about the five-year Turing test, right? Like if I, if I, which kind of ties in with the robot college test, right? So I think, I think what, that, what that's leaning toward is you, you would want a system to be able to, over a multi-year period, you know, grow its knowledge from starting point to new knowledge at the end of that multi-year period, at least as, at least as well as as, as as a human can, and that's uh, that that's different than just having the specific capabilities of a human at any at any one one point in time. So that's that's something I would definitely look at look at. In practice, like if 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 we had a system with a certain level of knowledge and intelligence, and we didn't we didn't upgrade the software, right? But we interacted with and taught the system things, let it experiment with things, and it gained vast amount of new capabilities through its own experimentation with, with the world, including gaining new domains of knowledge, right? Like like a person does that that that, that would certainly impress me, and that's that's something that. Every little kid does, and certainly no, no. And fine tuning. I mean, that's exactly what it's doing. When you give it new information, it learns that new information and incorporates it. It's able to do completely. Well, it, it is not at all gaining fundamentally new skills, and weren't represented in its training database. No. 
language. You can learn a different logical system. I can teach it new predicates, new functions. It depends what you mean by a fundamentally different skill. Yeah. Right? I mean, if I mean, if there was no, for for example, a young child who has never played any musical instrument, you can then teach to you can teach to play a musical instrument, which is different than someone who has mastered ten musical instruments. Learns learns to master the 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 eleventh musical instrument, and uh, I mean th there there's certainly a difference there. Because I mean all the. It can learn a new language, but it knows a lot of languages already. So it's it's not it's not that's not a new it's not a new type of skill. It's not it's not a new it's not a new type of skill. I mean. All right. Well, I think now what we need to do is thank Ben very much and thank all of the speakers for today. All right. Well, after immersing yourself in this encouraging and somber lecture from the Center for the Future Mind, you may be eager to explore more of the astounding and troublesome developments in artificial intelligence. To satiate your curiosity, I invite you to browse through the accompanying playlist, which not only offers a deeper insight into the implications of these breakthroughs, but also sheds light on measured aims at regulating their continued growth. Subscribing allows you to be privy to the upcoming panel discussions exploring non-human consciousness in babies and animals, slated to debut approximately one week from now. Take care. New announcements, the Patreon, as well as theoriesofeverything.org, the membership gives you access to personally curated detailed summaries of specific episodes. The most recent Stephen Wolfram lecture on ChatGPT, as well as this Ben Gortzel episode, replete with references to each book mentioned, theorems when they come up, the play-by-play -play bullet points of conclusions and statements by the guests. Only select episodes will have this feature, so you'll be able to vote on which episode you want most, because this takes a considerable amount of time. This is my minor way of saying thank you for supporting the Toe Podcast by giving you something edifying to read along or review afterward. Again, that's by signing up at patreon.com slash or if you don't like that website, then there's theoriesofeverything.org.